Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. We'd also love you to join in financially supporting the show if you are able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitik.com slash donate. We are here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. Here at the show, we are always looking for ways to connect with others who are just as passionate as we are about politics and how media, law, and society shape them. We launched Our Body Politic during the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic. Social distancing was a must back then. But now we're grateful to connect with listeners in person, which is exactly what we did in Pasadena, California. We joined KPCC's Public Radio Palooza for a special live show featuring two women of color who are champions of change in their respective fields. MacArthur Genius Award winner and Internet Studies scholar Dr. Sophia Noble and best-selling author and Palo Alto City Council member Julie Lithcott-Hames. I have been so affirmed by reactions to Our Body Politic. We do our best to fill each show with deep, complex, and joyful conversations. And it was such a joy to be in community with everybody who came out to the live taping. We had a fantastic evening full of laughter, insight, and music. The music provided by the talented singer-songwriter Monica Martin, whose songs you will hear throughout the show. So let's get right into our live show. My next guest is someone I have known for decades, and we have both changed and grown so much, and that is one of the great joys of life, is to see your friends grow and change and evolve. And boy, has what Sophia Noble evolved into is important and brilliant. Dr. Sophia Noble is a professor of gender studies and African-American studies at UCLA, a board member of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative and author of Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. It is a must read, or in my case, a must listen. I've gotten into audiobooks, much to my surprise. Also, she is the winner of a 2021 MacArthur Genius Award. Welcome, Dr. Noble. Yeah, it's really such a treasure to see you flourishing. And I know it hasn't been easy. And, you know, just because you're brilliant and black and female, things just are not that easy. You know, you have paved the way yeah. in showing us just how tough that is. Yeah, but, but here you are. And I have to say, as I was listening to your book, there were so many things that stood out to me, but there's this one of many lines, gods, these mathematical models were opaque. What is the opacity that you're talking about as you talk about these algorithms? Well, first, let me just say it's a thrill. This, add this to the bio uh, to get to be in conversation stop. with you. I truly mean that. And it's, a, it's really a delight to be here tonight with you. So let me just back up a tiny bit and say that I've been writing about technology for the past good solid decade and researching kind of the, the dark parts, the hidden parts, the terrible parts of the internet, which means I am absolutely no fun at a cocktail party because I will <laughs> ruin everything for you. Um, and part of what I have been studying for the last 10 years is the way in which we are seduced into engaging with so many different kinds of platforms and technologies, whether it's social media or YouTube or search. And people think that they're engaging with something that's just kind of neutral, a tool. They don't really give it a second thought. 
And in that way, the companies themselves have really marketed their products as if they are neutral and benign. But when you scratch the surface, which I did in my work 10 years ago, kind of looking at the way that women and girls of color were represented in these large-scale digital media and multinational technical systems, advertising companies, I found that Black women in particular and girls were highly likely to be exploited, commodified, hypersexualized, pornified, disrespected. And all the while that that was happening, the tech companies themselves were narrating their systems as simple tools and putting the onus of the terribleness back on the public. And I had to double click on that and say, I think there's actually more to it. And that really led to the writing of the book, Algorithms of Oppression, to kind of explain what's really happening with these technologies to the public. Yeah. And early in the book, you have this wonderful example of being with young cousins, these young women, and being like, oh, I'm just going to show them some stuff on the internet. Maybe not. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So explain how a search about black women or black girls can go terribly wrong in the hands of companies that specifically use the way that search functions to make money. Okay, so this was uh, interesting to me because my daughter was a tween. And her cousins were all coming over. So I have the staircase of nieces that I love so much. And they... Uh, I was thinking about things for them to do, and I was pulling up the computer, my husband and I, you know, we're always kind of looking to see, like, what are we going to do with the girls and kind of get them excited? And they were always on our laptops, too. And so I thought, well, you know, let me just kind of do a query. And I was just like, black girls. It was really kind of off the cuff. It was a benign thing. And of course, I was stunned that 80% of the first page results were all porn sites. Um, or hypersexualized sites. Now, you didn't have to add the word sex, and you didn't have to add the word porn. Black girls were synonymous with porn, and of course, these were not children. These were women who were coded also as girls. That's like a feminism 101, you know, kind of lesson about the way that women are degraded in our society under patriarchy. So that is what kind of was the perfect opening. I mean, I was getting my PhD at the time at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and I was thinking about the role of these large platforms, especially Google, because the librarians, believe it or not, I, you know, I was in library school. I mean, I was getting a PhD in library and information science, and all the librarians that I was engaging with were also talking about search, kind of like it was going to replace the public library. And so... In that context, I thought, wow, we need to talk about what happens when you do different kinds of searches on different types of identities, and people get these results, and they think, well, maybe that's like what black girls are about. And in fact, I was at an academic conference once where a a senior scholar uh, man in Europe said to me, don't go messing and challenging Google's algorithms. Maybe black girls just do more porn. And of course, really, this, I, I mean, really said that. I, this yeah, is, I, I, of course, I believe you, you know, because that's I hear what, stuff like that, but all like, the time, right? Okay, so what that also signals is that we live in a society that has naturalized these stereotypes about black women and girls. And if you just look a little more closely at racist and sexist stereotypes, one of the things you realize is that. These stereotypes come into existence around a variety of different kinds of economic imperatives in the United States. So, for example, 
the mythology of the hypersexualized black woman and girl comes into existence at about the time that the transatlantic slave trade is made illegal and the only way that you can reproduce the enslaved black African labor force is through rape and forced exploitation, right? We know this. And so you need a stereotype under that kind of economic exploitation and human trafficking that says black women like to have sex and black girl children like to have a lot of sex. And this is the origin story of these kinds of stereotypes. But when they show up, when you type in black girls, naturalized, neutral, that is a real problem. You see this because, and I know no one in this audience that's listening tonight or that's present believes the things they find in Google. I know no one here um, takes like just what comes on the first page. I know no one here tells their kids, just Google it. But see, when you do that around a lot of different kinds of ideas and concepts about people and communities and politics and power, you find a lot of dangerous ideas about those people. And I think ultimately what I tried to argue is that these systems are a threat to democracy. They're a threat to civil rights. They are implicated in the kind of present political climate that we're living in. You know, we know a lot about things like social media distorting and giving rise to things like the January 6th insurrection and attempt to overthrow the United States government and other governments around the world. We know that social media plays a role in the rise of, let's say, fascism and white supremacy. But you would be surprised how many people take things that they experience in social media and think, well, let me just Google this and see if it's true. And then we enter into another kind of Pandora's box. And so to me, these are the things that I love to talk about. Again, making me terribly unpopular at a cocktail party. (laughs) At this event, we were honored to have singer-songwriter Monica Martin perform some of her original works. Here she is, accompanied by pianist Ben Darwish, singing Pillowcase. I left my face from yesterday on your pillowcase I guess we fought in a parking lot What did I say? I can't recall anything at all For all I know We drove the car right through the stars to the moon But we never did anything beautiful We never danced along the moon And we got drunk and yelled in circles we Trashed a darkened room That was singer-songwriter Monica Martin performing Pillowcase. I am someone who, you know, really grew up in libraries. You know, it was such a part of my family's culture. And my 
grandmother did a lot of volunteering at libraries. And I was really into being able to do discovery in the context of libraries. And then when the internet came along, I was all in on that, but I also did see how it was drifting. How has, because you talk in your book about the market cap of Google and how Google has sort of claimed to be divorced from the havoc of the weaponization of identity and the use of search to sell. So where do we stand now in terms of like a public debate on regulating platforms? You know, after this evolution, which you and I have seen in our lifetimes and which your son and and other people, it'll be old history to them. Where do we stand legally and in terms of policy? Well, you and I met living in the Bay Area in Oakland a million years ago, and um, except that we're 35. And we, uh, we lived through that first dot-com boom and bust, right? We saw what happened in the Bay in terms of gentrification and lack of affordable housing and all the terrible things that we lived through. And I think that in that era, there was a lot of fascination with the tech industry And they really wrote the song that they wanted politicians and and the public to kind of sing about how incredible the industry was. Even though many of us were living right up close to the tech industry and witnessing something else rise in people experiencing homelessness, just a lot of atrocity too. And I'm feeling some kind of way because I know that Julie is coming on next and she's coming from Stanford. So... (laughs) Hey, girl. Um, So, (laughs) all right. So we know that that those things were happening. And then it was very, very difficult to talk about regulating the tech industry. I mean, it was just like absolutely not. And so now, fast forward, and you've seen many of my colleagues around the world, in fact, mostly women of color and LGBTQ scholars and journalists, investigative journalists like yourself, have been on the forefront of seeing the failures of the tech industry, and we've been writing about it, and no one was really listening. And now, in 2016, you have the election of Donald Trump, and all of a sudden, all kinds of tech industry leaders start saying, like, oh, yeah, you know, um, we knew these problems were here, and, you know, we're like, did you? Because you just, like, did you see what you just let happen? So I think that now there's more attention Certainly in the United States, um, we are behind compared to the EU. The EU has been way out front in terms of regulating around privacy concerns, around competition, you know, antitrust. They definitely have understood what it means to have an American monopoly, quite frankly, kind of have control in their countries over their cultural patrimony and other kinds of concerns that they have. And I think we're just starting to get a little bit of energy around regulation. Certainly the appointment of Lena Khan to chair the Federal Trade Commission has been incredibly important as a signal for wanting to see regulation. Rohit Chopra, the head of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, another incredible advocate for talking about how the government will hold companies that develop discriminatory technologies to account we're seeing a few more fines. But in mass, I would say 
we are in so much trouble because we're so far behind in these conversations in the United States. We have the powerful lobby in Washington, D.C., the tech lobby, and we have a fractured debate over the value of these technologies. And in fact, it's almost like the world turned upside down because we're people, feminists and people of color and civil rights leaders, we've been saying the internet is being weaponized against our communities and we are being harmed. We are also seeing now people on the very, very far right, politically white nationalists, people who are autocrats and believe in authoritarianism, also say that they are being discriminated against by these platforms. So that is actually creating, I think, a lot of confusion. And um, that's why we need to have these conversations so that we can sort out Are we arguing for the right to be free from having our civil rights imposed upon or a rollback of civil rights through these various kinds of technologies? Or are we talking about having the right to raise up a white ethnostate? Completely different conversations, which is one of the reasons why we have to put these values kinds of conversations to what we're talking about when we're talking about technology so we understand what values are in play. And I think, you know, just ultimately kind of to your question about libraries and other kinds of public institutions, they are so incredibly important to democracy, to multiracial democracy, to civil rights, and all of these kinds of institutions are increasingly under threat by not only an unregulated industry, but an industry that doesn't pay taxes for the most part. And think about what we're doing here on public radio. The fact that we can live in the state of California where this is one of the global epicenters of technology, our public schools are falling apart, our universities are falling apart, we don't have enough funding. So we're talking about a depletion of resources that actually exist They just don't exist in the coffers of the public. They exist in offshore accounts. You know, they don't get paid back into the system. And yet the industry uses our airports, uses our roads, takes the cream of the crop of the best students into their employment um, contracts and relationships and leaves the public kind of holding the bag. And I think that's actually probably the single most kind of regulation we could pass around the tech industry would be around taxation and they're paying their fair share back into the system to underwrite the kinds of things that we need like public media, public education, public libraries and so forth. A hundred percent here, here. Well, I could talk to you all night, but we have a limited window here. And I have so many questions I would love to lob at you about Equity Engine, but I'm just going to give you an open forum to give us a taste of what you think is hopeful. You've laid out a number of different challenges in the information environment. Where would you like us to go from here, and how do we begin to get there? Well, you know, after the MacArthur Fellowship, I was trying to think about what to do with that platform. And I started a nonprofit. It's called the Equity Engine. It's been, you know, a labor of love kind of on the side, really to help crystallize the kinds of things that I experienced in my own career. So I remember, you know, a decade ago when I would say, hey, you know that these technologies are really racist and discriminatory. No one wanted to listen, right? They told me black girls do more porn. And it was like kind of the, the, the investment in me by a handful of people that really helped me draw out a very important set of ideas that actually now are kind of mainstream. I mean, I meet people in the airport and they're like, girl, you know, have you heard about these racist algorithms like Google? And I'm like, 
As a matter of fact, I have. Um, so, you know, black women have a lot of amazing ideas and they go under supported. And we see things kind of like the canary in the coal mine before a lot of other people see them. And so this nonprofit Equity Engine has been trying to raise money to give like support to black women in particular who have great ideas that are undervalued and undersupported because I have seen in my own career what a transformational impact that can have, even if it doesn't solve the problem, the kind of consciousness raising that we do does in fact generate change. And um, it's been very difficult. I will tell you that people want to give me money to take on the tech sector. They are less inclined to want to give money to build black women's power. So that's something we should notice. And I, I know you have this experience too, Farai. Um, so, you know, we stay at it. And I feel very hopeful that we hold a powerful vision of a truly democratic, multiracial, socially just human experience for everyone. And those are the things that motivate me, that make me feel like getting up every day and working on these problems because it's amazing to think about the kind of world we could live in and what is lost if we don't pay attention to some of these things. So even though what I study is incredibly depressing, I feel empowered and hopeful that we're not going to let it all go down on our watch. Amen to that. And I, I truly do believe that. I believe we can co-create a future we actually want to live in. Absolutely. So, and I love making it with you. Amen. Thank you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> that was Dr. Sophia Noble, professor of gender studies and African-American studies at UCLA, board member of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative and author of Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism, from our live recording at KPCC's Public Radio Palooza in Pasadena, California. Let's listen to singer-songwriter Monica Martin introducing her next song, Go Easy Kid. Growing up in Wisconsin, we, uh, do, love, we do love Wisconsin, um, but living in Baraboo, Wisconsin, is not diverse. Um, and the narratives they take in about uh, black people, people of color... It really shaped a lot of my confidence, and I'm still, you know, in my 30s, sort of like chipping away at figuring out my identity and stuff. So just having this beautiful example of all these different women of color taking control of the narrative. It's just very special, and thanks for having us. All right, this one's called Go Easy Kid. About dreams that we had 
My next guest is Julie Lithcott-Hames, who can give us many lessons on adulting, which I think so many of us need, especially me. Best-selling author of books including Your Turn and How to Raise an Adult, longtime educator and guider of uh, young humans, and also has an incredible newsletter Uh, Julie's pod, which is really, to me, it's like a wonderful connection. She asked me earlier, like, what do you think it's about? You know, with that level of inquiry, I said it's, it's about where connection meets inquiry. It's asking questions, but also making sure that you know you're held in community. And that means so much. Also, she is a newly elected Palo Alto City Council member, Um, You know, because it's not enough just to say that you want things done sometimes, which is my favorite thing. Like, hey, can you do that? Um, It's to get them done. So Julie Lithcott-Hames, elected official, welcome. So what does it mean? And I think that you, you really did such a great job in your turn, your book about what it means to actually take on the reins of being an adult. What does it mean to be an adult? Um, To be an adult is not to be a child. When you're a child, you are someone else's responsibility. When you're an adult, you get to be responsible for yourself. And yes, that is terrifying at times, but it is also delicious not to be on the end of someone else's leash. That's what I want for all of us in adulthood, to know this is your one wild and precious life, to quote the late poet Mary Oliver. Mary Oliver, yes. Right? This is yours to figure out, and there is terror occasionally, and there is tremendous joy when we are in charge of ourselves. So much is possible. That's what adulting is, I think. Yeah. And your adulting has taken you through young love that has endured over decades, parenthood now of adult children, being at Stanford, the, you know, working in the law, many different chapters. So can you just give us a little sketch of how you got to be who you are now as an author and an elected member of the city council? Uh, I came into this world inherently transgressive. I am the child of an African-American father and a white British mother, and I got the message from young that something was wrong with me in the eyes of some, and something was wrong with daddy, and something was wrong with my parents' marriage. Society taught me that. Teachers taught me that. Friends taught me that. And I think that gave me a heart for humans. Many of us are in the helping professions. Many of us are empaths. I think the source of my care and concern about using my work to help others emanates from having been a young child who saw in the eyes of others that I was not enough or worse, that I was problematic. And so um, I studied American studies in college. Uh, I fell in love with law. I went to law school to be the sort of lawyer 
who would help humans, who would help America. Um, but I was so insecure as a young woman of color at an elite law school, I now realize with the wisdom of my 55 years that when I was 25, I so needed the approval of white mainstream society that even though I'd gone to law school to help humans, I left law school to help myself matter in their eyes. So I went corporate, went to Silicon Valley, worked at a nice law firm, intellectual property litigation. I was making the world safer for copyrights, patents, and trademarks as the internet and social media were becoming a thing, protecting trademarks instead of protecting humans. And that work quickly sucked the life out of me. <laughs> it was well-paid and miserable. And I decided to become a university administrator to try to help young people make better decisions about their life journey sooner than I had managed to do. And that was incredibly rewarding work, being paid to care about other humans, as a student affairs administrator does, um, was joyful work. I left that 10 years ago to write a book about a concern that was emanating from my role as a dean of freshmen. Um, I wrote How to Raise an Adult because I was seeing the encroachment of parents into the agency of young people. Parents loving the heck out of their kids and holding their hands and and doing so much for them that they were actually depriving those kids of really being able to do for themselves. 2016, 2020 happened. And like many of us, I felt a degree of helplessness, highly educated, upper middle class, privileged, scared, wanting to leave. I Googled, you know, how do I get a Canadian passport? And um, I thought about leaving America. And then I realized if people like me who are highly educated and privileged take our privilege and leave, what have we done? We've left people with less to fend in a really difficult environment. So I got myself out of my pandemic malaise. I got myself out of my Trump America malaise and said, you know what? There are some seemingly intractable problems in my city of Palo Alto, the birthplace of Silicon Valley, that are worth focusing on. We have become entirely unaffordable because those Googlers and Facebook folks and Twitter folks, when they were startups, they all got stock options. When those companies went public, they minted millionaires and there was a waiting period in which they could not sell their stock. We were all aware, you know, this is the date when the Google millionaires can now buy property. And they wanted their kids to go to the public schools in Palo Alto. So they wanted to buy in our city. And so they made a bid on a house and bid it up by hundreds of thousands of dollars. Our real estate market in Palo Alto is out of control because we didn't have the wisdom way back then to put some controls in place. I'm running because Palo Alto has become... I, I'm sorry, I, I have run. I run. I'm about to be inaugurated. I, I, I am trying to serve the working class and what we call the missing middle who work in our city and are nurses and teachers and, and utilities workers. They make our city magnificent and they live two hours away. And their own children can't go to school in our magnificent schools because they live elsewhere. I ran for them. I'm aiming to serve them to restore the out-of-balance ecosystem of Palo Alto, California. I love it. And as you're talking about Palo Alto, a number of different things are popping into my mind. I did a Knight Fellowship at Stanford 20-odd yes. years ago, and it's, it's a journalism year-long journalism fellowship. And at that time, East Palo Alto was still predominantly working class and Latino. But then before even it was mainly working class and Latino, I found out that John Funabiki, who's a wonderful writer and journalist um, who had 
been the journalism program officer at the Ford Foundation, a job I later held. He grew up there. His family is Japanese-American. They had been interned in the internment camps. And when he grew up, East Palo Alto and other parts of Palo Alto, even the non-East part, were truly multiracial. He was like, well, we had these squads where like, you know, there'd be the Latino kids and the Asian kids and the black kids, and you'd all have a representative to get over feuds. So he's like, we didn't have any serious beef because we all had an emissary that would work it out. And so I think about this Palo Alto, this, this kind of, to me, like bygone era where there were actually black people just kind of being children there, like with no particular faculty connection. That seems unthinkable now. But you're here to stand up for people who kind of live in the tradition of a multiracial and, you know, at least income mixed Palo Alto. But how do you how do you begin to really think about like what conversations you might be having with your soon to be colleagues? Well, it's conversations with my soon-to-be colleagues, of whom there are six, and then an enormous staff of wonderful, talented people. But then there are my neighbors. We are 69,000 strong in Palo Alto, and we tend to go blue in every election, and we tend to have signs out in our front yards saying, in this house, we believe all lives matter. We believe uh, love is love, and black lives matter, and you know, queer people matter. And all of it. We have the signage that purports to express our beliefs, and yet... We are populated now with a majority of folks, it seems, who don't want those folks in their backyard. Thankfully, I have learned that it's not helpful to call people racist. Um, (laughs) If you're trying to move a population toward adopting a different set of principles about can we make the housing more dense so it's more affordable? Can we go a little bit higher so we can put more people here? It's not helpful to say, you know what, this all goes back to redlining. And, uh, you know, this is our equivalent of the Jim Crow South. I actually did manage to say that in a debate this fall. And that didn't go over very well. So I am learning. And look, I'm here to learn and grow until I take my last breath. So I am determined to listen better and to tell better stories about why humans need homes and about why we should be delighted to welcome new neighbors into every community in Palo Alto rather than fear those neighbors. Yes, yeah, that is worth clapping for. I mean, to me, it's like I was thinking a friend of mine said, hey, friend of mine's son just got a job at Google as an engineer straight out of college. Starting salary was just over $200,000. And there are people pooping on his doorstep in San Francisco. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense because of what's happened to San Francisco. And the hyperpolarization of income is directly correlated to, you know, unhoused people and to things like people defecating on your doorstep. And it seems to me that there are some very practical, selfish reasons that one might not want to have that kind of lack of a civic stability, which seems to come in the case of the hyperpolarization of wealth. I mean, can you make a practical argument like, hey, our lives might be better if dot, 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 or not really? I found that people are most willing to open up and listen when you can tell a story about a particular human. Uh, Palo Alto prides itself on the quality of our public schools, some of the finest in the nation. And when you can sit down with somebody and say, isn't your kid's teacher great? Yeah. Aren't we fortunate that our kids can go to these schools? 
isn't it terribly unfortunate that that teacher spends two hours in the car in both directions to be able to serve our city? Does it feel right that we seem to be creating a permanent servant class of folks who work here but cannot themselves take advantage of that higher quality of life associated with living in a place like this? They don't want to be on the road two to three, four hours a day going to and from their homes in our city. That's one argument. To develop compassion for those who don't yet live here, here's a complete flip argument. We had a small earthquake up in the Bay in uh, October. It was a 5.1, so, you know, not a big deal, but enough to remind you that we live in earthquake country. And that's when I began to change the narrative on the campaign trail. I said, y'all, look, it was a 5.1. If it had been a 6.9, like we had up here in Loma Prieta, 1989 earthquake, we would have all emerged from our homes and our offices, seen the buckled roads, seen the collapsed bridges, seen the fire in the distance, seeing the collapsed power lines, worrying about our elderly friend who lives an hour away or our disabled friend or family member. And we would ask ourselves, where are the helpers? Where's the person who's gonna fix the utilities? Where's the person who's gonna fix the roads? Where's the person who's gonna come be the home health care provider for that person who is homebound? And then the universe is gonna tell us, oh, you wanted the helpers to live here? Oh, sorry, they don't live here because you didn't want them before. And so they're not here to serve your community that is now in need. We've sort of become this community of kings with a moat around us. And we're drawing up the drawbridge and we're gonna discover to our detriment, there's a very enlightened self-interest concerned here. No, no, we all who currently live there would benefit from this being a more economically integrated and more racially integrated place. It behooves all of us to live amongst each other. We are interdependent. A proper city needs plumbers and teachers and software engineers living together to do the work of the city. When I think about America's evolution over my lifetime, we're about the same age, I really think about the ways in which I grew up in a family that believed in the American dream despite many traumatic experiences, you know, um, many forms of employment discrimination. Um, my grandmother was an employment discrimination whistleblower and paid for it, and she, she was working for the federal government at the time. She eventually prevailed on merit, but she was still blocked from promotions for seven years, so it hurt her retirement. And I didn't see a lot of tangible reward to her, but I still tried to live up to that legacy as I navigated my own industry with its own levels of discrimination. But my family believed in the American dream in a passionate way. I wonder if someone who was a teenager today would have the same level of faith. And you, in your work, at Stanford, but just also as a public intellectual, deal with this transition point of adulthood. So what would you say to someone who said, you know, who was a teenager who said, I don't know what I should think about the American dream. Is there a dream left? I would say, I'm deeply interested in your thoughts on this. Tell me more. I would try to demonstrate respect that is by deep listening. And then I would pause and I would say, you know what? Things look incredibly bleak right now. And I'll give you that. In some ways they are. And yet two things I know. Our ancestors most likely endured worse. And 
there is nothing more powerful than a person who's decided who they are and what matters to them and gives themselves permission to go and solve that problem. So this is why Gen Z gives me so much hope. And then Gen Alpha, whom I think is the name, that, which I think is the name of those coming after, but Maxwell Frost, yeah. our first Gen Z member of Congress. Who we interviewed on our I'm body so politics. glad, yeah. right? He's, he's, he's fabulous. Identifies as black and Latino out of Orlando area, Florida, just got to DC, tried to rent an apartment and was turned down because his credit score was bad because he racked up a lot of debt in the campaign. So he is highlighting the imperative to fix our broken housing system, whether it's to buy or to rent. We have an inhospitable system for our young and it can make the American dream look impossible to attain. And yet they're fierce and they're ferocious and they're going to demand change as generations before them have. So tough times breed warriors. So bring it on. Let's do it. There are good problems to be solved and we are the people whose job it is to solve them. Well, I could, again, go on all night, but I'm going to leave it there. I love that. You just gave me a pep talk. I'm going to carry that with me. I'm so glad. I love being with you. Yes, Your podcast is remarkable. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Julie. And please check out her books, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, Julie's Pod. Trust me, if you're in a bad mood and you read a Julie's Pod, you'll be in a good mood. I love it. Thank you. Julie Lithcott-Hames, thank you so much. Thank you for I appreciate you. That was Julie Lithcott-Hames, New York Times bestselling author of books including How to Raise an Adult and Your Turn, and a former dean at Stanford University. She's also a city council member in Palo Alto, California. Throughout the show today, you heard excerpts of the talented singer-songwriter Monica Martin. During our live show taping at KPCC's Public Radio Palooza, we were lucky to have Monica performing some of her original singles like Cruel, Pillowcase, and Go Easy Kid. We want to introduce you to this incredible artist, so we invited her to come chat with us on the show today. Monica Martin was born in Chicago and raised in rural Wisconsin. In addition to her solo music, her experience includes fronting the experimental folk pop sextet Fox, collaborations with James Blake, and recently opening for Marcus Mumford on tour. Monica is also a very special guest from the Our Body Politic family as the sister of our former senior producer, Bianca F. Martin. Welcome, Monica. Great to have you. Hi, Farai. Lovely to see you again. Yeah, it was it was so much fun. That live show was just the energy was so good. But let me start with you. Every superhero has an origin story. Um, obviously, we we know your sister well. What is your origin story? Well, quickly, villain. And yeah, like you said, born in Chicago, raised in the Midwest, Baraboo, Wisconsin. My parents listened to a lot of music around the house, so I really always loved it. And I was frankly like too shy to sing in school, but I eventually had some really good friends who sort of coerced me into joining the Fox. And then I was like, I like connecting people in this way. I love singing. I love writing. It's really vulnerable, but it's worth it. So how did you start playing music professionally? Fry, I had a good friend named Matt Holman, whose band had broken up. I was probably 20, I guess. And he's like, Monica, I know you can sing. You've been singing harmonies to things in my car for a while. I need a singer. You've got a lot to say. Let's do this. So at first I was playing covers of a mutual friend of ours, artist named Sontag. And then I was like, you know, this is kind of strange. I don't know. I want to sing my own stuff. So made a record and we had sort of this charmed indie experience in Madison. Like a lot of people came around us and supported us. South by Southwest 
happened for us and it was still when magazines were happening <laughs> and was, was I this don't know. With the band fox or a different yeah band? this is with fox we had a great experience at south by and it just sort of rippled out from there so what are you doing now musically and are you touring yeah so i've been working on a record for a few years and i'm about to finish it and hopefully have it released by the fall time crossing my fingers and i'm about to go on tour actually leaving tomorrow from la to new york to start a tour where i'm opening for lake street dive which should be really fun right yeah so that'll wow. be like east coast and midwest i'll be passing through madison so i'll get to see mm-hmm. bianca and family as well and it's gonna be so fun we're playing two shows at the ryman in nashville which is one of my favorite venues like classic grand old opry like Oh, I'm so excited. And Lake Street Dive is just an awesome group of people. So how does it feel in your body when you're singing and when you're really in your groove? (laughs) This is a hard question because I often have trouble, I think, on tour. I'm kind of neurotic and I'm grateful for the experience, but it's also been a difficult thing for me being on stage. But I do have moments on stage where I feel, even if I'm still really activated in a way that can feel dark, I do also feel connected to my songs. And at the very least, I feel very much like I'm being myself, being honest. That's important to me. So when I'm in my groove, I feel like, okay, I'm able to be telling the full truth right now. We will leave it there because you squeeze this interview in when you have a tour to get ready for. And it was so great to meet you in person. And thank you for coming on Our Body Politic. Uh, Farai, you're awesome. I had so much fun and I hope to see you again. Thank you so much. That was Monica Martin, singer-songwriter, now touring with Lake Street Dive. You can catch some of her work on Fox's Tiny Desk Concert Online. That's P-H-O-X, Fox. Her site is monicamartinofficial.com. And here's Monica with a final song for us, Cruel. Angel on my shoulder till I lost it I'm barely out the door and she's exhausted Flirting with the line and then I cry. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm host and executive producer for Rai Chidea. Jonathan Blakely is our executive producer. Nina Spensley is also executive producer. Emily J. Daly is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booking producer. Steve Lack and Anoa Shanga are our producers. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. Kelsey Kudak is our fact checker. And a special thanks to the folks at KPCC. John Cohn, Tony Federico, Rebecca Stummy, Kristen Payne, Kristen Ranger, Caitlin Biljohn, and Alexis Durow. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at 3Cs. Today's episode was produced with the help of Lauren Schild and engineered by Archie Moore. This program is produced with support from the Luce Foundation, Open Society Foundation, Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.